where the sighing desert gave way to the borders of Ilmiora, between the coasts of the eastern continent and the lands of Takesh, Darajor, and Shatsar, there lay the pale sea. It was a cold sea, a morose and chilling sea, but ships preferred to cross from Ilmiora to Darajor by means of it, rather than chance the weirder dangers of the Straits of Chaos, which were lashed by eternal storms and inhabited by malevolent sea creatures. On the deck of the Ilmioran schooner, Elric of Malnibane stood wrapped in his cloak, shivering and staring gloomily at the cloud-covered sky. The captain, a stocky man with blue, humorous eyes, came struggling along the deck toward him. He had a cup of hot wine in his hand. He steadied himself by clinging to a piece of rigging and gave the cup to Elric. Thanks, said the albino gratefully. He sipped the wine. How soon before we make the port of Benava, Captain? The captain pulled the collar of his leather jerkin about his unshaven face. We're sailing low, but we should sight the Tarkesh Peninsula well before sunset. Benava was in Tarkesh one of its chief trading ports. The captain leaned on the rail. I wonder how long these waters will be free for ships now that war's broken out between the kingdoms of the west. Both Dardajor and Pantang have been notorious in the past for their piratical activities. They'll soon extend them under the guise of war, I'll warrant. Auric nodded vaguely, his mind on other things than the prospect of piracy. Disembarking in the chilly evening at the port of Benava, Elric soon saw ample evidence that war darkened the lands of the young kingdoms. There were rumours rife, talk of nothing but battles gained and warriors lost. From the confused gossip, he could get no clear impression of how the war went, save that the decisive battle was yet to be fought. Loquacious Benavans told him that all over the western continent men were marching, from Mirren, he heard, the winged men were flying. From Jarkor, the white leopards, Queen Yashana's personal guard, ran towards Dardajor, while Divim Swarm and his mercenaries pressed northwards to meet them. Dardajor was the strongest nation of the West, and Pantang was a formidable ally, more for her people's occult knowledge than for her numbers. Next in power to Dardajor came Jarkor, who, with her allies, Tarkesh, Midden, and Shatsar, was still not as strong as those who threatened the security of the young kingdoms. For some years, Dardajor had sought an opportunity for conquest, and the hasty alliance against her had been made in an effort to stop her before she had fully prepared for conquest. Whether this effort would succeed, Elric did not know, and those who spoke to him were equally uncertain. The streets of Benava were packed with soldiers and supply trains of horses and oxen. The harbour was filled with warships, and it was difficult to find lodging since most inns and many private houses had been requisitioned by the army. And it was the same all over the western continent. Everywhere, men strapped metal about them, bestrode heavy charges, sharpened their arms, and rode beneath bright silken banners to slay and to despoil. Here, without doubt, Auric reflected, he could find the battle of the prophecy. He tried to forget his tormented longing for news of Tsaratinia, and turned his moody eyes towards the west. Stormbringer hung like an anchor at his side, and he fingered it constantly, hating it even as it fed him his vitality. 
He spent the night in Benerva and by morning had hired a good horse, and was riding through the sparse grassland towards Jacor. Across a war-torn world rode Elric, his crimson eyes burning with a fierce anger at the sights of wanton destruction he witnessed. Although he and himself had lived by his sword for many years, and had committed acts of murder, robbery and herbicide, he disliked the senselessness of wars such as this, of men who killed one another for only the vaguest of reasons. It was not that he pitied the slain or hated the slayers, he was too remote from ordinary men to care greatly about what they did. Yet, in his own tortured way, he was an idealist who, because he lacked peace and security himself, resented the sights of strife which the war brought to him. His ancestors, he knew, had also been remote, yet they had delighted in the conflicts of the men of the young kingdoms, observing them from a distance and judging themselves above such activities, above the morass of sentiment and emotion in which these new men struggled. For 10,000 years, the sorcerer emperors of Malnibane had ruled this world, a race without conscience or moral creed, unneedful of reasons for their acts of conquest, seeking no excuses for their natural malicious tendencies. But Alric, the last in the direct line of emperors, was not like them. He was capable of cruelty and malevolent sorcery, had little pity, yet could love and hate more violently than ever his ancestors. And these strong passions perhaps had been the cause of his breaking with his homeland and travelling the world to compare himself against these new men, since he could find none in Malnibane who shared his feelings. And it was because of these twin forces of love and hate that he had returned to have vengeance on his cousin Erkun, who had put Cimmeril, Auric's betrothed, into a magic slumber and usurped the kingdom of Malnibane, the Dragon Isle last territory of the fallen, bright empire. With the aid of a fleet of reavers, Ulrich had raised Imrir in his vengeance-taking, destroyed the dreaming city, and scattered forever the race who had found it, so that the last survivors were now mercenaries roaming the world to sell their arms to whoever bid highest. Love and Hate They had led him to kill Urkun, who deserved death, and inadvertently... Cimmeril, who did not. Love and hate. They welled in him now as bitter smoke stung his throat, and he passed a straggling group of townspeople who were fleeing, without knowledge of their direction, from the latest depredations of the roving Darajorian troops who had struck far into this part of Tarkesh, and had met little hindrance from the armies of King Hilrain of Tarkesh, whose main force was concentrated for the north, readying itself for the major battle. Now Elric rode close to the western marches, near the Jacorian border. Here lived sturdy foresters and harvesters in better times, but now the forests were blackened and burnt, and the crops of the field were ruined. His journey, which was speedy, for he wasted no time, took him through one of the stark forests where remnants of trees cast cold silhouettes against the grey, seething sky. He raised the hood of his cloak over his head so that the heavy black fabric completely hid his face, and rode on as rain rushed suddenly down and beat through the skeleton trees, sweeping across the distant plains beyond, so that all the world seemed grey and black with the hiss of the rain, a constant and depressing sound. 
Then, as he passed a ruined hovel, which was half cottage and half hole in the earth, a cawing voice called out, Lord Elric. Astonished that he should be recognised, he turned his bleak face in the direction of the voice, pushing his hood back as he did so. A ragged figure appeared in the hole's opening. It beckoned him closer. Puzzled, he walked his horse towards the figure and saw that it was an old man, or perhaps a woman, he couldn't tell. You know my name. How? Thou art a legend throughout the young kingdoms. Who could not recognise that white face and heavy blade thou art carrying? True, perhaps, but I have a notion there is more to this than chance recognition. Who are you? And how do you know the high speech of Malnibane? Elric deliberately used the coarse, common speech. Thou shouldst know that all who practice dark sorcery use the high tongue of those who are past masters in its arts. Wouldst thou guest with me a while? Elric looked at the hovel and shook his head. He was fastidious at the best of times. The wretch smiled and made a mock bow, restoring to the common speech and saying, So the mighty lord disdains the grace of my poor home. But does he not perhaps wonder why the fire which raged through this forest a while ago did not in fact harm me? Aye, said Elric thoughtfully. That is an interesting riddle. The hag took a step towards him. Soldiers came not a month gone. From Pan Tang they were. Devil riders with their hunting tigers running with them. They despoiled the harvest and burnt even the forests that those who fled them might not eat game or berries here. I lived in this forest all my life, doing a little simple magic and prophecy for my needs. But when I saw the walls of flame soon to engulf me, I cried the name of a demon I know, a thing from chaos which latterly I had dared not summon. It came. Save me, cried I. And what would ye do in return, said the demon? Anything, I quoth. Then bear this message for my masters, it said. When the kinslayer known as Elric of Malnibane shall pass this way, tell him that there is one kinsman he shall not slay, and he will be found in Sequaloris. If Elric loves his wife, he will play his role. If he plays it well, his wife shall be returned. So I fixed the message in my mind, and now I give it to thee, as I swore. Thanks, said Elric. And what did you give in the first place for the power to summon such a demon? Well, why my soul, of course. But it was an old one and not of much worth. Hell could be no worse than this existence. Well, then why did you not let yourself burn, your soul unbartered? I wish to live, said the wretch, smiling again. Oh, life is good. My own life perhaps is squalid. Yet the life around me, that is what I love. But let me not keep you, my lord, for you have weightier matters on your mind. Once more the wretch gave a mock bow, as Elric rode off, puzzled but encouraged. His wife still lived and was safe, but what bargain must be struck before he could get her back? Savagely he goaded his horse into a gallop, heading for Sequelordus and Jacor. Behind him, faintly through the beating rain, he heard a crackling chuckle at once, mocking and miserable. Now his direction was not so vague and he rode at great speed, but cautiously avoiding the roving bands of invaders, 
until at length the arid plains gave way to the lusher wheatlands of the Sequoia province of Shakur. Another day's ride and Elric entered the small walled city of Sequilorus, which had so far not suffered attack. Here he discovered preparations for war and learnt news that was of greater interest to him. The Imririan mercenaries led by Divim Slorm, Elric's cousin and son of Divim Tvar, Elric's old friend, were due to arrive next day in Sequilorus. There had been a certain enmity between Elric and the Imririans, since the Albino had been the direct cause of their need to leave the ruins of the Dreaming City and live as mercenaries. But those times were past long since, and on two occasions he and the Imririans had fought on the same side. He was their leader by right, and the ties of tradition were strong in the Elder race. Arak prayed to Ariok that Divim Slorm would have some clue as to his wife's whereabouts. At noon of the next day, the mercenary army rode swaggering into the city. Arak met them close to the city gate. The Emeridian warriors were obviously weary from a long ride and were loaded with booty since, before Yashana sent for them, they had been raiding in Shazar, close to the marshes of the mist. They were different from any other race, these Emeridians, with their tapering faces, slanting eyes and high cheekbones. They were pale and slim, with long soft hair drifting to their shoulders. The finery they wore was not stolen, definitely Malnabonean in design. Shimmering cloths of gold, blue and green, medals of delicate workmanship and intricately patterned. They carried lances with long, sweeping heads, and there were slender swords at their sides. They sat arrogantly in their saddles, convinced of their superiority over other mortals, and were, as Elric, not quite human in their unearthly beauty. He rode up to meet Divim Slorm, his own sombre clothes contrasting with theirs. He wore a tall collared jacket of quilted leather, black and buckled in by a broad plain belt at which hung a poignard and stormbringer. His milk-white hair was held from his eyes by a fillet of black bronze, and his breeks and boots were also black. All this black set off sharply against white skin and crimson glowing eyes. Divim Slorm bowed in his saddle, showing only slight surprise. Cousin Elric, so the omen was true. What omen, Divim Slorm? A falcon's. Your name bird, if I remember. It had been customary for Malnabonaeans to identify newborn children with birds of their choice. Thus, Elric's was a falcon, a hunting bird of prey. What did it tell you, cousin? Elric asked eagerly, and gave me a puzzling message. While we had barely gone from the marshes of the mist, it came and perched on my shoulder and spoke in human tongue. It told me to come to Sequilorus, and there I would meet my king. From Sequilorus we were to journey together to join Yashana's army, and the battle, whether won or lost, would resolve the direction of our linked destinies thereafter. Do you make sense of that, cousin? Some, Elric frowned. But come, I have a place reserved for you at the inn. I will tell you all I know over wine. If we can find decent wine in this forsaken hamlet. I need help, cousin. As much help as I can obtain. For Saracenia has been abducted by supernatural agents. And I have a feeling that this and the wars are but two elements in a greater play. 
Well then, quickly to the inn, my curiosity is further piqued. This matter increases in interest for me. First falcons and omens, now abductions and strife. What else, I wonder, are we to meet? With the Amrurians straggling after them through the cobbled streets, scarcely a hundred warriors, but hardened by their outlawed life, Alric and Divimslaw made their way to the inn, and there, in haste, Alric outlined all he had learned. Before replying, his cousin sipped his wine and carefully placed the cup upon the board, pursing his lips. I have a feeling in my bones that we are puppets in some struggle between the gods. For all our blood and flesh and will, we can see none of the bigger conflict, save for a few scarcely related details. Well, that may be so, said Ulrich impatiently, but I'm greatly angered at being involved and require my wife's release. I have no notion why we, together, must make the bargain for her return, and neither can I guess what it is we have that those who captured her want. But if the omens are sent by the same agents, then we had best do as we are told, for the meantime, until we can see matters more clearly. Then, perhaps, we can act upon our own volition. And that's wise, Divim Slorm nodded, and I'm with you in it. He smiled slightly and added, whether I like it or not, I fancy. Auric said, where lies the main army of Dadajor and Pantang? I heard it was gathering. It has gathered, and marches closer. The impending battle will decide who rules the western lands. I am committed to Yashana's side, not only because she has employed us to aid her, but because I felt that if the warped lords of Pantang dominate these nations, then tyranny will come upon them, and they will threaten the security of the whole world. It's a sad thing when Imelda Bonayan has to consider such problems. He smiled ironically. Aside from that, I like them not, these sorcerous upstarts. They seek to emulate the bright empire. Aye, Alric said. They are an island culture, as ours was. They are sorcerers and warriors as our ancestors were. But their sorcery is less healthy than even ours was. Our ancestors committed frightful deeds, yet it was natural to them. These newcomers, more human than we, have perverted their humanity, whereas we never possessed it in the same degree. There will never be another bright empire, nor can their power last more than 10,000 years. This is a fresh age, Divimslorm, in more than one way. Time of subtle sorcery is on the wane. Men are finding new means of harnessing natural power. Our knowledge is so ancient, Divimslorm agreed. Yet, so old is it that it has little relation to present events, I think. Our logic and learning are suited to the past. I think you're right, said Alric, whose mingled emotions were suited neither to past, present, nor future. Aye, it is fitting that we should be wanderers, for we have no place in this world. They drank in silence, moodily, their minds on matters of philosophy. Yet, for all this, Uruk's thoughts were forever returning to Tsaratsinia, and the fear of what might have befallen her. The very innocence of this girl, her vulnerability in her youth, had been, to some degree at least, his salvation. 
His protective love for her had helped to keep him from brooding too deeply on his own doom-filled life, and her company had eased his melancholy. The strange read of the dead creature lingered in his memory. Undoubtedly the read had referred to a battle, and the falcon which Divim Slorn had seen had spoken of one also. The battle was sure to be the forthcoming one between Yashana's forces and those of Sorosto of Dardajor and Jagreen Lurn of Pantang. If he was to find Saracenia, then he must go with Divim Slorn, and there take part in the conflict. Though he might perish, he reasoned that he had best do as the omens ordered, otherwise he would lose even the slight chance of ever seeing Saracenia again. He turned to his cousin. I'll make my way with you tomorrow and use my blade in the battle. Whatever else, I have a feeling that Yashana will need every warrior against the Theocrat and his allies. Divim Slorm agreed. Not only our doom, but the doom of nations will be at stake in this.